If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Are we just bugs on a rock in a void? Is human existence a mistake? Is it each person's responsibility to correct the mistake that nature made? If, uh, if life under the sun is all there is, if the observable, visible world is all there is, what's the point of it all? You know, it's interesting um, how prevalent Ecclesiastes is in popular culture. The difference, though, between Ecclesiastes and this little spoof on Saturday Night Live is that Ecclesiastes is a thought experiment. As we'll see in a few weeks, there's something behind why the writer is doing what he's doing, why he's contemplating the topics he's contemplating. I'm not sure that that mentality is present in the screenwriting of this little deal here. But it gives you a window into how many people see our world. We're diving into this interesting, vexing book of Ecclesiastes. And today we turn our attention to chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Let me read as we begin this morning. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this... My wisdom still stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. American jazz artist and uh, songwriter from the 1940s and 50s, Peggy Lee, uh, wrote a song entitled, Is That All There Is? And in the second verse of this song, she sings this. She says, when I was 12 years old, my father took me to a circus, the greatest show on earth. There were clowns and elephants and dancing bears and a beautiful lady in pink pants flew high above our heads. And so I sat there watching the marvelous spectacle I had the feeling that something was missing. I didn't know what, but when it was over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a circus? And then she belts out her famous refrain, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. Peggy Lee captures very well the frustration human beings have endured in pursuit of the ever-elusive good life. 
We see this drama played out every day of our existence. It might be a journey you find yourself on even now. Maybe you're on that journey looking for the good life and you don't even know it yet. Is there a thing under the sun that can satisfy the human heart? This is the burning question of the philosophy professor in in these verses from Ecclesiastes 2. So as we look at this, here's what we're going to consider today. We're going to look at the experiments he conducts, the result he discovers, and the answer he needs. The experiments he conducts, the result he discovers, and the answer he needs. First, the experiments he conducts. It's important to notice, first of all, the philosophy professor is not impulsively flying off the handle, engaging in whatever impulsive desire his body longs for at that moment. That's not the picture being portrayed of this guy in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. He's actually being very deliberate and calculated in testing the pleasures of this life. These, these, these verses are not portraying a college frat party boy who's just going off the handle from one thing to the next. This is more of a mad scientist who's conducting various experiments on himself to see if any of those will give him a return on his investment. And in this passage, he conducts four experiments. We're going to look at each of them. The first experiment he conducts is pleasure. This is the first test he gives himself. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Now, this term pleasure is not necessarily erotic in nature. A more fundamental definition of the word is to have gladness of heart or joy. So again, this is not an impulsive party boy who's going after the next thing. This is a mad scientist conducting experiments with his rational mind guiding him to see if anything under the sun can offer him what his heart wants most. He's looking for joy. And frankly, the way he's going about it is the way most of us go about it, too. Probably most of us can't relate to the college frat party boy. But most of us can relate to the person who is letting their rational mind guide them in search of pleasure in this world. For some of us, we engage in vacation. Maybe that's the thing that will give my heart gladness. For others, it's a club to belong to. For some, it's that dream job, that career, that home, that car. This is what the philosophy professor is doing. He's scouring everything under the sun in this existence, in life as it really is, to see if any of that can offer a return on his investment. But notice what he discovers, verse 1b. But that also proved meaningless. So his conclusion is that finding pleasure under the sun does not give a return. Keep in mind, this phrase, under the sun, is really important to the book of Ecclesiastes. It occurs 29 times in the book. It, it means life as it is, the visible, observable world without reference to anything beyond it. Life as it unfolds, as it really happens without reference to anything beyond it. He's scouring life under the sun looking to see if there's anything under the sun that can give him a return on his investment. And he concludes with pleasure that that's meaningless. So he moves on to his second experiment. He goes into the comedy club. Laughter. Maybe laughter will be the means of finding 
the good life. And we see that played out in our lives every day. Think for a minute about viral YouTube videos. Viral YouTube videos. Jonah Berger wrote a New York Times bestseller, very interesting book called Contagious, Why Things Catch On. And it's a study in virality. So he scours American culture looking for all the things that go viral and tries to figure out why they're going viral and other things don't. And, and uh, when he's discussing YouTube videos in his book, he makes note that there are two basic categories of videos that tend to go viral. Videos that when you watch them, you say, wow, that's amazing. And videos that make you laugh hysterically. The two basic categories of videos that go viral. Now, viral videos are, are saying more about the human heart than they are about the video itself. Viral videos, that kind of cultural artifact, is like a mirror being held up against the human heart to show us what it is we really long for. We long for the good life. We long for the good life, and we think laughter might be the way we can obtain it. But notice what the philosophy professor, the mad scientist, discovers about laughter. In the text, he says, it's madness. Utter madness. Quoting lines from Tommy Boy and Dumb and Dumber can make you chuckle. But they aren't likely to add depth to your life or your relationships. Let me tell you something. Nobody has walked out of Billy Madison contemplating the deep stuff of life. Laughter can distract us. Maybe take our minds away from the pain. But it can't ultimately overcome it. So this mad scientist leaves the comedy club and he heads over to Porvino Wine Bar and Bistro in Grafton. And he tries alcohol. Verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine. I tried cheering myself with wine. Now, like pleasure and laughter, wine can be a good thing. Ecclesiastes 9.7 commends it as such. But the issue the mad scientist is undertaking here in these experiments is to see to what extent pleasure, laughter, wine can satisfy the human heart. Can the good life be found in these things? Now, watching TV commercials during the Super Bowl, one would be led to believe that wine is the magic elixir wherein the good life is found. But those commercials never portray the party girl hugging the toilet at 3 a.m. Those commercials never portray the father taking off his belt in a drunken rage. So the mad scientist concludes wine is incapable of satisfying the human heart. The good life is not going to be found at the bottom of a Bordeaux glass. So he leaves Porvino, wine and bistro, and he trods onto his next experiment, which is recreating paradise. He's tried pleasure, he's tried laughter, he's tried wine. Now he's going to attempt to recreate paradise. In this text, there's lots of detail dedicated to all the things that he's building. Dream houses, he's planting vineyards, he's constructing gardens and parks. He's transforming the environment in which he lives in order to bring about experiencing the good life. He's manipulating his environment into a paradise. He's trying to recreate Eden. 
the vast majority of people in our world don't have the resources to do what the philosophy professor is able to do here. The vast majority of us do not have the resources to be able to manipulate our environments in such a way that we can encase ourselves in a paradise. But that doesn't mean we don't try to, to go there. If we can't if we can't enclose ourselves in a paradise, we will go to a paradise. Let me show you one example of a paradise we travel to in order to transform our environment. Take a look at this. There it is. There it is. Now look, I like Disney. I think it's evidence that God has created human beings in his image and likeness. We have been created in the image and likeness of an insanely creative God. And this is part of humanity's expression of that. But in many ways, Disney is also demonstrating a longing the human heart has for paradise. Because what does it promise on the commercials? Paradise. That's why they're able to raise prices year after year after year and never see a downturn in attendance. The human heart longs for paradise. Now, if you've ever been to Disney with kids, you know it comes up woefully short. I learned a very interesting principle in experiencing this firsthand as I walked with my screaming kids through paradise. <laughs> Taking sinners to paradise does not automatically transform them into saints, which maybe is a hint into what the real problem is. So the mad scientist attempts to recreate Eden, to recreate paradise for himself. These are the experiments he's conducted. Pleasure, laughter, wine, recreating paradise. Let's look secondly at the result he discovers from all of this. What was the ultimate result of all these experiments that he conducts in order to find the good life? Look at verse 11. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now let's, let's just pause here for a moment and make sure we're clear on all that he's experienced and all that he's accomplished. Your gardening hobby or the worlds your kids have created in Minecraft pale in comparison to the creations of the mad scientist. He would have been number one on the ancient version of MTV's Cribs. You might have a playlist that includes the band One Direction. He would have bought the band. And yet after all of this, his conclusion is nothing was gained under the sun. It's meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. All of this stuff did not deliver on giving him the good life. A few years ago, NBA great uh, LeBron James did an interview with USA Today. Here's a man, think about this guy. He has, he has won multiple NBA titles, multiple MVP awards. He's got more endorsement money than most of us know what to do with in a lifetime. But in this interview, James reveals something Ecclesiastes-like to us. 
In this interview with USA Today, this is what he said. What really got to me when we won the NBA championship was how short of a time it lasted. The championship lasts, and then he snaps his fingers just like that. The confetti rains. You go in the locker room, pop the champagne. You do the media. You have the parade, and then it's over. It's over. You're looking around, and everybody's back to normal. I was like, wow, that was an unbelievable 48 hours. I want it again. It was the best 48 hours of my life, and I needed that again. And here's a man who's devoted his life to the game of basketball, honing his skills for the very moment he speaks of. When he's able to pop the champagne and see the confetti rain, he's able to declare to the world that he and his team are the best. And what has that yielded? An unbelievable 48 hours, which caused him to say, I want that again. I need that again. While James didn't put these words to it, the sentiment's still the same. His NBA titles, his MVP awards, all the money has yielded nothing. A chasing after the wind. This is the, the, the result of philosophy professors pointed out to us in an ancient text. We don't have to go try living that to see if it works. We've already been told what results from it. All the pleasure, the laughter, the wine, the recreation of paradise are meaningless. It's chasing after when in them cannot be found the good life. In other words, there is something innate to our makeup as human beings that does not allow for pleasure, laughter, drinking, and recreating paradise to content us. There is something hardwired into the human nature that will not allow us to be contented by those things under the sun. So let's look at the answer we need. And once again, true to philosophical form here, the professor doesn't point this out in black and white to us. He's raising the questions, he's pointing out the problems, he's helping us discover what the answers can't be. Earlier in the service, you saw a spoof commercial um, with Jim Carrey. Ironically, it was Carrey himself who once said this. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. On some level, Carrie has discovered what Ecclesiastes is pointing out to us. And the discovery is this. Idolatry does not satisfy. That's the issue taken up in chapter 2, 1 to 11. The issue is idolatry. Not everything the professor indulged in or engaged in is, is, is itself sinful or bad. Some of the stuff is, some of it is not. 
building houses, planting gardens. It's good stuff. But it is raising once again that the issue is idolatry. Idolatry is not just bowing down to a wooden statue. Idolatry is turning to someone or something besides God to give you what only God can give you. Idolatry is turning to someone or something in hopes that that someone or something will give you a deep sense of satisfaction and contentment. Idolatry is turning to some good thing in order to give you what only God can give you. One of the many passages of scripture that show us this is Jesus' parable, the prodigal son, in Luke 15. The son demands his share of the inheritance, which was striking, because in that day, inheritances were not passed out until the father died. So the son is treating the father as though he's already dead. He's saying to him, you're dead to me. But as is the case with our heavenly father, many times he gives us over to the desires of our hearts. And so does this father. He gives his son his share of the inheritance. And his son goes out and he loses everything. He spends it much the same way the philosophy professor spends it in Ecclesiastes 2. Until he finds himself broke, mucking out pig pens, reaching rock bottom. So he runs home to his father. He repents of his sin. And is welcomed back. On the one hand, this is showing us God's eager willingness to forgive repentant sinners. But on another level, it's showing us where true satisfaction is found. The prodigal son spent his money much the same way the philosophy professor spends his money in time in Ecclesiastes 2. The prodigal son discovers what the professor discovers. It's madness. It doesn't deliver. But the prodigal son discovered what does deliver. The prodigal son discovers where true contentment and satisfaction is found. And that's in union with his father. Only when we're joined in relationship to the living God will we find contentment. And once you are joined in relationship with the living God, we experience contentment on a daily basis only as we pursue him. Augustine lived during the 4th and 5th centuries in his perhaps most famous book, Confessions. He captures this notion well. He said this, You have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This is the solution the professor only slightly hints at by eliminating nearly every other possible source of rest. You have made us for yourself, God, and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. So how are you doing? Is your heart restless? Do you look over the next hill and think, over there, I could be happy? 
that doesn't deliver. Maybe it's time you've tried something different. Maybe it's time to come home. It's time to come home. God has made you for him. And your heart will continue to be restless until it finds its rest in God alone. Psalm 1611, David says this, in your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of satisfaction, of contentment, of rest, of peace. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the answer we need. Let's pray. Loving Father, our hearts are prone to wander. We're so easily enamored with the next flashy thing to grab our attention. Thinking that if we can acquire that thing, if we can get that thing, then we'll be able to sit down, take a deep breath and rest. Lord, you're showing us in this passage of Scripture everything we look to under the sun is going to come up woefully short. So God, I pray that you would supernaturally intervene if we are engaged in those kinds of fruitless pursuits. God, show us mercy and stop our attempts at finding contentment apart from you. Some of us need to come home. We need to come running to you. So Holy Spirit, would you prompt that action now? Even in our concluding moments here this morning, may our hearts find the rest in you. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's people said, Amen.